Welcome to the Badlands. That overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Hello and welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Napolitano. So there's a belief amongst the general public and much of the media that threats to basic human rights don't happen in rich countries like the United States. There's an assumption that such threats only manifest in areas of extreme poverty beset by famine and war. And yet, Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights makes it abundantly clear that that view is false. It states, Everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services. Meanwhile, over half a million people are homeless in the United States, about 40 million Americans experience food insecurity, and there's an ongoing political battle just to ensure that everyone can get access to medical care. The mistake, of course, is to ignore the massive inequalities that exist in nations which are, in the aggregate, very wealthy. Severe material deprivation exists right alongside extraordinary wealth. And in fact, the massive inequalities mean not only that economic growth often fails to help those who could benefit most, but a booming economy can actually make things worse for those who are already struggling, contrary to the common belief that more growth ultimately is what is needed to secure an adequate standard of living for everyone. Today we're going to focus on an issue which I think illustrates this point, and that is the crisis of affordable housing that is occurring in many parts of the United States and other wealthy areas of the world. And fortunately, we have with us today Sara Imran, who is currently involved in research and education on the affordable housing crisis as it's currently unfolding in Nashville, Tennessee. Sara is the Director of Policy and Research at the National Human Relations Commission, which is a local government group devoted to protecting and promoting the personal dignity, peace, safety, security, health, and general welfare of all people in Nashville. Welcome, Sara, and thank you for being with us today on The Badlands. Hey, Toby. Thank you so much for having me. We're very much looking forward to learning about this important and frankly, rather complicated phenomenon of housing crises. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having this conversation too. So we'll focus our discussion on the city of Nashville as a kind of case study in housing crises. But as I think will become clear, there are plenty of general economic and moral lessons that we can draw from this particular case. So why don't we start by giving our listeners, the vast majority of whom probably know very little about Nashville, some economic background on the city so we can understand the context in which the housing crisis is unfolding. Yeah. So I moved to Nashville about five years ago uh, for grad school, and that was a super interesting time to have moved to Nashville. I was in a master's program with community development. So a big part of our program was structured around, you know, a big component of every course was partnering with community organizations, finding out what's happening. And because Vanderbilt is in Nashville, a lot of it was happening. Um, you know, the case studies we were using were based in Nashville. And so I'm brand new to the city. And one thing that Every, every community organization, every neighborhood association that we go to, even professors, everybody seems to be talking about this growth that's happening in the city, this unprecedented growth. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my first impression of the city that it seems like it's, it's experiencing unprecedented change. And then once you, once you start looking more into it, then, you know, um, there, there are estimates that say that they're close to a hundred people that move to Nashville every day. 
Um, there's a ton of development going on in the city. I, I was reading earlier that uh, Nashville has more cranes than cities like Austin, Denver, Boston, even New mm-hmm. York, which wow. is so crazy to think about, right? And I think there are a number of things that have have gotten that so you know one can ask why why are people moving here what it what is it that the city has to offer so purely in terms of jobs um i think you have industries like um music and uh, entertainment you have a huge healthcare industry finance insurance education there's so many colleges and universities so i think in terms of like jobs and industries those are major contributors but i think just as a city as a culture um it's called music city it's a lively city there it also you know there's the southern hospitality aspect of it a big city small town feel is how people tend to describe it so i think mm-hmm. there's there it has a lot going for it um and as a result of the growth there's definitely a lot of good things that are happening so the unemployment rate for instance that's at an all-time low according to the bureau of labor statistics nashville's unemployment rate is at 2.7%, which um, is... Wow. <laughs> yes, right? And it's lower than any other metropolitan area in the U.S. that has over a million uh, people living in the city. Um, so if, if you're comparing to other big metropolitan cities in the U.S., Nashville does have the lowest unemployment rate. But at the same time, so while there are good things that are happening, um, you know, there are cities that the city is changing in ways that some people like and others don't. It has positive and negative aspects to it. And I think the problem with this growth that a lot of people have is that it's not the benefits aren't distributed equally in the city. Vanderbilt conducts this biannual poll. Are you familiar with it? The Vanderbilt poll is what they call it. So they basically try to get a reading of public opinion in Tennessee and more specifically within Nashville. Um, And they cover you know, multiple different categories. So um, their most recent poll came out just a couple of weeks ago, actually. And it showed that the number of people in Nashville who think that the city is moving in the right direction has dropped from 72% in 2015 to 53% in this latest poll. So, you know, that's like um, an almost 20% drop in people that think that Nashville is moving in the right direction. Interesting. And then, yeah. And then, you know, there are a lot of Concerns um, that this will reflect from national residents that show that, you know, this explosive growth, people, while while in the beginning people were excited about it, increasingly people are very, very concerned. Um, and, yeah, a number of people, you know, in quotes, think that the city is no longer on the right track and then it's growing too quickly. Okay, interesting. All right. So, so I mean, it, it seems like just to focus on the positive for a second, right? Contrary to many cities in the United States, which are fear, uh, which are facing serious financial problems, Nashville is actually seems to be doing great. Right? Explosive growth yeah. is is sort of what uh, probably every every city kind of wants and and uh, seeks. All right, so let's let's talk a, a little bit more about the um, the negatives and start talking about the housing crisis in particular. So I, I guess we should start by just asking, you know, when we say there's a housing crisis in Nashville. What do we mean by that? Uh, so, so can you say something about what it is for there to be a housing crisis? And can you give us a sense of the scope and severity of that crisis? Sure, sure. Um, to your point earlier about the fact that, you know, growth is good and development, it's, it's better than the alternative, which is stagnancy and, right. you know, people <laughs> leaving the city and no development happening. And I completely agree from an economic growth perspective. Nashville is doing really well. And, you know, you have neighborhoods that are being vitalized. Downtown is being transformed. Tourism is, is an at an all-time high, but um, I think the problem 
comes when the benefits of this growth aren't reaped across all income classes. Um, and you have long-time Nashville residents that, you know, have called Nashville home for decades. And um, now all of a sudden they're struggling to live in the city that has been home for them for years. So in the past few years, what's happened is that housing costs have skyrocketed. And there are thousands of long-time national residents that um, have been and continuing to be pushed out of the city because they can no longer afford to stay here. So what's happening is that you have a number of organizations have moved their headquarters to the city, and that comes with high-paying jobs. Um, so you have people that are moving from places like San Francisco, L.A., New York, Boston, and compared to those, the cost of living in Nashville is cheaper. So it's easy, it's easy to buy relatively easier to buy a house and you know the cost of living is still more affordable than in those cities but what's happening is that you know you have people from out of state coming and taking these high paying jobs and they have the capacity and the resources to buy houses or live in super expensive um, apartments downtown but long-time Nashville residents like their neighborhoods are shifting gentrification is happening and I think that's that's what I would call a housing crisis. There, there are too many people in the city right now that don't feel like they have a safe, stable, and affordable place to call home. And the median median income of Nashville is around fifty two thousand, and those earning less than sixty percent of the median income are really struggling to find um, and maintain a residence. In, in Nashville. So you, you have families that are, you know, um, in unstable situations, moving from one housing situation to the next. Um, and, you know, some families becoming homeless, some yeah. families having to leave uh, Davidson County and move outside, even though, you know, work is here, family is here. And yeah. yeah. So I, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the the pamphlets that uh, the National Human Relations Commission produced, which are sort of educational uh, publications to explain what's going on here. So you said families that are earning less than 60% of the median are having a hard time securing housing, having, you know, uh, basically secure financial security and, and housing security in their lives. So, so that's not necessarily people who you would think of as being in poverty necessarily, or certainly not people who are unemployed. You said the unemployment rate is extremely low. So what kinds of, you know, what kinds of work are these people doing such that, you know, they, they are working but are not able to afford housing? That's a really good question. We have two categories of housing. There's affordable housing and there's workforce housing. So examples of those who are in need of affordable housing professions include childcare workers, bank tellers, restaurant staff, security guards. And then examples of uh, professions that are in need of workforce housing include police officers, social workers, nurses, electricians. And there's a pretty alarming statistic which um, says that, you know, more than 70 percent of Nashville residents fall into the affordable or workforce housing income brackets. So, I mean, back to your previous question of what constitutes a housing crisis, if, you know, more than 70 percent of your total population is in need of affordable workforce housing, you know, some sort of assistance, um, then I would definitely call that a crisis. Right. And, and these are jobs that most people consider very good, stable jobs that pay fairly well, right? You're exactly these right. are <laughs> These aren't exactly uh, right. um, bad jobs. And, as and then I, I think too, like, if you look at pro- professions like police officers, social workers, nurses, like a lot of these professions, firefighters, these are the professions that make 
the city run smoothly. And I think these are the professions that are sort of the backbone of the city and keep it running smoothly. A lot of city employees, and if they can't afford to live in the city where they're providing invaluable services, then I think we have to question that. One more thing that I, I think it's important to mention here. So the other aspect of housing is wages. So people, it's, you know, it's both things. If um, sure housing costs are going up, but if wages were going up in a proportionate way, maybe people wouldn't be struggling as much. Right. But the problem is that since 2009, the minimum wage has stayed at um, $7.25 in Tennessee, which if you assume that someone's earning seven twenty-five, even if they're working 40 hours a week and 52 weeks of the year, say they are taking no vacation at all, they're still earning about $15,000 in the entire year. And so if you're working a minimum wage job, you're likely not getting benefits either. So you're getting $15,000 in a year, um, out of which you're paying rent, utilities, groceries, transportation, healthcare, what do you, you know, exactly, exactly. What do you have left over for your, your children? Are you able to save anything? And that's where you have to distinguish between a living wage and a livable wage. Although, I mean, one can argue that 725 isn't even a living wage. A livable wage is ideally you're earning enough to pay all of your expenses that you absolutely have to pay, but you're also able to live comfortably on top of that and save. Right. So it's not it's not enough to just have a living wage. You know, we as a as a state need to have a livable wage. So, right. So you said a housing crisis. Part of the the what constitutes a housing crisis is resi- Nashville residents who have been living in the city forever, let's say, yeah, used to be able to afford their housing. Now they can't. Why? Well, for one, housing costs are going up because there's an influx of wealthy people who can, or relatively wealthy people who can pay more for housing. So housing costs have gone up. That's part of the explanation. And then also, while unemployment is very low, the kinds of employment are not, that uh, just doesn't pay enough, right? The kinds of jobs that people have are not super well paying such that they can afford these these rising costs. So part of the explanation you said for the increase in housing costs is just that there's an influx of people from fairly wealthy cities who are presumably doing uh, high paying professional work in in Nashville. And so they can afford um, more expensive housing. This is increasing the demand for housing. And so landlords can charge more for rent and people will be able to pay at least a lot of these newcomers anyways. So is that all of the explanation for the rising costs or is there more to it than just that? So there there are a number of factors that play into why the cost of housing fluctuate and this holds true for across the nation. Like, you know, you have supply and demand factors, you have the economy, you have um, interest rates, political forces, and so on. But one of the things that we dive into in um, the research that we've done is the rise of the corporate landlords and this is more this isn't this is more of you know a big structural shift that's happened so while your landlord used to be someone who lived in your city and who you could call when you needed increasingly what we see now is large impersonal corporations that are functioning as landlords what we're seeing now is wall street taking a more direct role in playing landlord 
a rental industry that was once, you know, uh, it was mostly mom and pop owners, um, people who you knew, people who live close to you. Um, those used to be your landlords. And that has been transformed into one where you have corporations and Wall Street. Um, you know, th- those are now major players in who owns your house. What does that change mean for the tenant? So what that means is, uh, it's interesting, In um, we actually have a diagram in the second one, and hopefully after, you know, within the information to this podcast, you can link our research. We also have it available online. But um, one of the, you know, when I was doing research into it, and I figured out this pattern, I was like, okay, we, we need to find a way to show this visually. So I think a lot of times what tenants think is that it's just a relationship between them and their property manager. So if their landlord is saying your rent is going up $100 a month, you know, they think that that entire $100 is going in the pocket of the property manager or the landlord, whoever's manager, um, whoever they're turning in their check to. But what they don't see is that there's this whole thing that's happening behind the scenes where you have private equity firms. Um, and this goes into a deeper discussion, which is after the reception, after the recession, a lot of houses, as we know, people weren't able to keep up with their mortgage payments anymore. And so banks and private equity firms, they bought up a ton of houses. And basically now you have shareholders that have bought into these private equity firms and private equity firms that are managing these different properties and houses. And so that increase in $100 a month is actually, it's it's going through a number of hands. So it's going directly to your property manager, but he may or may not be keeping any of that. Then it's going to the private equity firm who is then distributing that within their shareholders. So an increase in your rent is a direct increase in the profit of shareholders. And and so those are two opposing interests right there. Right. Um, an increase in rent for you is like, you know, obviously an added expense, but it's um, an increase in profit for shareholders. And right. shareholders, shareholders might be people that are, you know, living in another state, in another country, even people that have never been to Nashville. Um, And And, there's a lot more that's happening behind the scenes than people realize. And and so crucially, right, these private equity firms have no social ties, as you said, to any of the tenants. So uh, whereas a traditional landlord might, you know, they're, they're going to presumably have some kind of relationship with the tenant, hopefully. And so they're you know, if they can, <laughs> uh, at least there will be some pressure not to raise their rent by some astronomical amount all of a sudden. But I think, as you point out in in the research, this is something that is happening with these private equity firms. They're just they will take over a place and then raise the rent by a huge percentage, and the tenants can't pay it anymore, and so they have to leave basically. That's exactly right. Um, and we also, um, in the research, we get into some of the reasons as to how people lose their homes. So one of the things that we've already discussed earlier is uh, migration of high-income earners to Nashville. So that's one of the reasons. Another one is, you know, this intentional creation of unlivable homes. So what landlords will do sometimes, or, you know, whatever firm is managing this property, if they want to increase the rent, um, what they'll and, and they want, you know, older tenants who are paying less rent to leave, they'll basically stop keeping up with maintenance. Um, you know, mm. they they start neglecting 
the building. Um, much needed repairs are ignored. And the unfortunate thing is that under Tennessee state law, tenants don't really have a lot of rights. Um, so while other states, there are a number of other states that allow for um, renters to withhold rent from a landlord until certain repairs are made, um, that option is not available in Tennessee. So a landlord can actually legally ignore repairs that you know fall short of obviously an absolute emergency, but a lot of repairs they can just completely ignore. And what what people will be do will, will have to do is unfortunately they'll be forced to move. And once they move, that's when they'll do all the repairs. They'll renovate it, make it nice and shiny, and then double the rent. Right. Now the the traditional compassionate landlord who doesn't want to raise the rent on their tenants is kind of held hostage by this process as well, right? I think as as you guys say in the research, well, I mean, sort of an obvious problem is with this increased demand, all this stuff we're talking about, property values presumably have gone way up and thus taxes have gone way up and thus even the compassionate landlord has to raise their rent and... Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you're exactly right. Um, you know, you, you definitely do still have landlords that, that are compassionate that might not want to, but because, you know, they might not even be looking to increase their profits, but they might have to raise the rent just to keep up with property taxes, even just to keep their income steady, they might have to increase. So they might not necessarily be gaining by increasing the rent. They might just be, you know keeping it the same as uh, it was before. Um, and there has definitely been a hike in property uh, taxes. So between 2013 to 2017, Nashville's property values increased on average by 37%. And, you know, there, there, there are certain parts of Nashville, which it sounds crazy, but there are some parts where the property value increased by 50% and some parts where it increased by 93% wow. just between 2013 and 2017. So you're exactly right. Um, even if some landlords don't want to, they're exactly like you said, they're held hostage by this increase in property taxes, which they, they have to work their way around right. in order to keep their own income stable. So, so what about federal subsidies like Section 8 and low-income housing tax credits, which are aimed at ensuring that housing is affordable? I mean, do they help? Uh, and if so, why are they still, why are they not adequate? So um, Section 8 is a federal housing voucher program, which is one of the most common ones. And the idea is that uh, once someone has one in order to qualify, one needs to be below a certain income level just in order to even be able to apply. Mm -hmm. And then if you have the voucher and you're able to find someone, you know, a place to live that will accept your voucher, then um, you basically pay 30% uh, of your income towards rent and then Section 8 covers the rest. The problem with that is that it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to find, uh, for renters to find, you know, properties or landlords that are going to accept Section 8. And the mm -hmm. reason for that is that once you get Section 8, depending on the region where you're living, HUD will define what they call the fair market rate, which is basically, in their estimation, what they think a studio, one-bed, two-bed, three-bed, four-bed, however many, um, should be. So, for instance, according to HUD, in the Nashville area, the fair market rate of a one-bedroom um, is $816. And as anyone who lives in Nashville <laughs> knows, that it's you can be super super hard pressed to find a one bed for eight hundred and sixteen dollars or less. The actual market rate is closer to twelve hundred. So once once you get the voucher, you have 
a certain number of days within which you have to find a landlord who is charging one what HUD defines as the fair market rate. So you have to find a one bedroom, um, which will, you know, the rent should be $816 or less. And two, you have to find a landlord who's willing to accept your voucher. And if you aren't able to do it within this period of time, your voucher expires. And the waiting time is sometimes years um, in order to get the voucher. And then, you know, within months, it can expire if you're not able to find it. So because of that reason, there, yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons why yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, so just as an aside, do you know why is their estimate of the fair market value so low? Is it just outdated or do they have strange methodology or? I think that must be it. Also, I, I'd be curious to know how they define this, this region. Like what all is, what is the extent of the region for which they are saying that the fair market rate is eight sixteen dollars right. I'd be curious to know that as well. Like, what, what surrounding areas in Nashville are potentially skewing the fair market rate in that direction? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure, but it's definitely worth looking into. It's very curious. Because, <laughs> yeah. man, is it way off. Yes. Um. Okay, I, I think that was a, a wonderful explanation of sort of the mechanics of the housing crisis and how it's working, who's being affected, and um, how much. But let, let's talk about some of the other harms of the housing crisis. So, you know, we know that being unable to afford your home and being forced to move are obviously stressful things that no one wants to have to go through. That in and of itself sounds like a serious harm. But you can imagine someone who's unsympathetic just kind of saying, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad. It just means that you'll have to live somewhere else that's cheaper, right? It's not that you don't have you can't get housing at all. You just have to go somewhere else. What would this kind of person be missing in their response? Right? Are there additional or broader harms that come from displacement on this scale? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good question. And to that, I would say, you know, a home is much more than just a roof over your head. We see elderly residents, communities of color, families that are living in poverty, immigrants um, that are at an increasing risk of displacement. And what happens is that displaced residents typically have to move to neighborhoods with less access to amenities, the neighborhoods that are further away from their preferred location. So whether that be their work, where their children were going to school, whether, you know, um, grocery stores, all sorts of amenities where they might have had in their previous neighborhood and now they're having to move out and they might not have those things anymore. And then, uh, I mean, you know, you have people that experience feelings of isolation or loss of their community if they have to move. Some might be unable to find a good fit in a new community. And so at a personal level, I think it can lead to feelings of anxiety, stress, financial strain, uncertainty. And then, you know, if, if we're talking about a family unit, then what, what negative impact is that having on children, having to move schools? The quality of schools, as we know, the quality of schools is very, very variable, neighborhood to neighborhood, zip mm-hmm. code to zip code. Uh, what does that interrupt, interruption of education mean for them? You know, are you, is the family now moving into a food desert? Do they still have access to food and other important goods and services? What, what does the commute to work look like now? And if they didn't have a car, are, are they, what is their method of 
getting to work now do they still are they even still able to keep the same job or do they have to potentially shift right. and then i think at the at a community level you have cultural shifts that happen that take place in neighborhoods um and that can lead to communities feeling like you know they've lost something of a safety net that they felt like they had uh people might start feeling like outsiders in their own communities uh i think one of the common things that happens as a result of gentrification is that people of color are often criminalized because they're perceived they may be perceived as dangerous even though that might have previously been a neighborhood that consisted predominantly of people of color right. now you have a few you know white folks moving in and <laughs> all of a sudden you know these long-time residents of this neighborhood are dangerous and there's like added police in this neighborhood and i i mentioned um you know immigrant communities being at an added risk of displacement earlier um just to give you an example there was an apartment complex in nashville that in 2016 they had about 200 Burmese refugees living there and within that apartment complex about 60 apartment units um were occupied by this Burmese refugee community and you know upon speaking to them we found that they would often carpool with each other to get around not all of them had cars they would help each other with english many relied on there, there was a family resource center that was right next door that offered language courses there was a clinic nearby it was all super convenient and some of these nonprofits actually intentionally located in this area because they knew that there was this large refugee community in this apartment complex but an investment company bought the building they spiked the rent and as a result this entire community that relied on each other for social and community support has been displaced and that has been one of the most that one of the saddest anecdotes that i've heard as a you know in in this environment of this housing crisis and displacement that's happening yeah and and i i want to just interject here and say i you know i think what what can be really frustrating is that people when talking about these kinds of issues often will have a sort of overly economized view of the problem mm, and look th- look yeah. at things solely through that lens um yeah. ignoring the psychological and social costs <laughs> of right. the problem as well and and those um angles in fact and in, in the past two podcast episodes we did we were talking about the world happiness report which studies you know global well-being and they they identify factors which are explanatory of people's well-being right being happy feeling happy reporting happiness and the thing that is most important it turns out uh you know uh, national gdp is important it correlates highly with happiness but the thing that is most important is social support right the sense that there are people around you who if you are in trouble if you need something that they can help you right that is the most important thing it turns out to people's well-being so i mean this you're giving wonderful examples of how the housing crisis destroys that most important thing in people's well-being and i i guess i <laughs> just to finish off the rant <laughs> i i just want to say for people who are solely looking at this through the economic lens i think are really ignoring the science right this this psych- the psychology and the sociology of people's well-being um i find that very frustrating but um so yeah i thought your your example points to exactly that now one of the things you mentioned here is that and, and something that the human relations commission in nashville has been looking into is the disproportionate effect that the housing crisis has had on communities of color so can you can you give us a sense of the disproportionality and maybe talk about some of the causes of this sure So 
yeah, when, when we started doing research on this, obviously the first place we went, we did a history deep, deep dive. And anyone who knows anything about housing policy in the U.S. knows that for decades, um, the federal government discriminated against black families by denying them access to the same kind of federal housing subsidies that white families receive to purchase homes. Um, there was this practice known as redlining where, you know, um, officials sat down with maps of cities and they literally, if you look at maps, it's like someone had color pencils and they colored in sections of the map. Um, and based on the number of black families in certain areas, um, if there were, you know, um, predominantly black families, it was uh, classified as red, uh, as hazardous, and it was colored in as red. Um, whereas if you had predominantly white families living in an area, that was considered to be desirable, and it was colored in green. And, you know, there's um, there's a spectrum, and you have different uh, levels in the middle, but between desirable and hazardous, this was an indication to banks, to developers, uh, as, as to where it is safe to invest and to develop and for banks to give loans to people to own houses. And as a result, um, you know, you, you have people that, I think it became something of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where they said that even though there wasn't much difference in those neighborhoods, apart from the racial demographic, they said these areas are hazardous. And so, you know, you had banks and businesses and companies and even the government not investing in those areas and as a result they ended up becoming you know overcrowded not having resources not having good schools not having you know becoming food like all of these things that they (laughs) that was given as a warning sign to investors like all of that actually ended up happening just as a result of this policy and you, I think you, you then, got basically de facto segregation, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. You know, you have you have people that say that um, it's it's a matter of preference that black people want to live close to each other and white people want to live close to each other and brown people want to live close to each other. But, you know, it's that might be an aspect of it, but it's a small aspect of it. You see very intentionally that the federal government has through policies um, created circumstances for segregation and circumstances that are very, very adverse to black families over the decades. So, you know, home ownership um, for a long, long time, it was out of reach for black families. There were decades of discrimination during which time the federal government denied black families the same kind of home, home ownership subsidies that were available to fight white families, as I just mentioned. Um, and, you know, there there were financial institutions that tar- targeted minority communities with subprime mortgages. Um, so that basically means that they were charged a much higher interest rate than people who either lived in desirable neighborhoods or um, basically um, white families. And as a result of these, and, and I think because black families were so long excluded by the financial system and by banks, um, they were though even those that had the financial capacity to buy homes were denied that. So when I think bank banks realized that you know we're missing out on this group of people that could actually provide us with a lot of money, and so they tar- they targeted 
black families and families of color that had the financial means to purchase a house, but they charged them subprime uh, mortgages and super high interests. And that actually sucked billions of dollars of wealth out of these communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you think about it, most people, um, the way that they invest um, and create generational wealth is through investing in homes and property. Yep. Um, it is it is that wealth that parents that can then pass on to their children. And then, you know, the parents might not have been able to go to college, but now they have a home and their children don't have to worry about that. So they can go to college. And now the children have, you know, an upper leg. And not only can they buy another house, but they can send their children to college and XYZ. And so, you know, you see this compounding effect after each generation. And then on the flip side, you know, if you deny all of this to even one generation of black Americans, that has a compounding effect, too. Um, and that's that's just the case if one generation is denied. But the reality is that the black community has been denied this source of wealth accumulation from the offset of the U.S. It's only in the 1960s when the Fair Housing Act was passed and housing discrimination was made illegal that this kind of stopped. But we still see financial institutions and banks um, that have discriminatory practices, either in terms of denying uh, them loans and mortgages or charging them subprime mortgages. And also, we we find that the gap between white homeownership and black homeownership rate is about 30% greater than it was in 1960 when housing discrimination was legal. So again, I think that speaks to the compounding effect over time. Right. I guess from from my research in, into this history, which I think actually a lot of people are increasingly aware of, the, the term redlining itself, I think, is sort of becoming part of people's vocabulary, which is a, a good thing. They're starting to appreciate these phenomena. Um, but historically, for people who haven't taken these kinds of problems seriously, one of the things they've often said is like, well, look, you know, the market forces will take care of it, provided you save and work hard, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, as you just sort of pointed out, what this ignores is that white families were able to get ahead precisely because they had massive assistance from the government, right, that families of color did not have access to. And then once you kind of set up that kind of, you know, that massive inequality and you start having uh, segregated communities where there's less wealth for a variety of historical reasons, Mm. it becomes, the market forces aren't going to be enough, right? It becomes impossible basically to... You know, it's not as though people can just sort of pull themselves out of that kind of situation. Um, yeah. It seems like it's never worked that way, right? The the middle class, uh, you know, the, the white families that benefited from the New Deal policies, that's what enabled them to sort of accumulate this wealth, as, as you were just describing. Right. Um, but in any case, so can you say more about, um, you know, how has how has this history sort of given shape to the Nashville housing crisis in particular? I mean, is there is there more we can say about the way that history manifests through the national yeah. housing crisis. Yeah. So you have um, neighborhoods in Nashville that used to be predominantly African-American. So North Nashville, East Nashville. And what you see happening in these um, neighborhoods now is hypergentrification. E- East Nashville in particular, I'm sure you must be familiar, has become something of this like artsy, hip, cool part of town. I guess what the kids um, where, call the hipster part of town. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And even even with North Nashville, um, so it's it's almost like the parts where you saw 
that were redlined typically tended to be um, the urban core because this is the same time that white flight was happening, white families were moving out of the city. And so let's let's like mark all of these areas close to downtown, which, you know, we don't that, 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 that are not desirable. And so those were marked off. Those were um, and that's where predominantly you had African-American communities living there. But now we see something of a reverse trend that's happening where because a lot of work is downtown. And I think this is also something of a millennial thing that, you know, we want to be living close to work. We want to be living in the urban core. And so now there's this reverse trend. And all of a sudden, you know, you know, to your point of market forces, what that's signaling to to developers is that there is a demand for, you know, high rises and fancy apartment complexes and uh, luxury apartments, um, which we can charge $1,800 a month uh, for rent, you know, that kind of thing. So it's almost like it's so unfortunate, but it's like this system was created where someone was holding a, someone with a map and a, a color pencil basically just said, okay, this, this is where, this is what we're defining as hazardous, and this is where all the black people live. And, you know, all the, the suburbs, this is where we're going to develop, this is where we're going to put a lot of resources, people are going to be able to buy homes. And now you see this reverse trend happening, and that same area that was defined as hazardous is all of a sudden desirable to high-income earners, and that's signaling to developers. And so there, that, that's leading to hyper-gentrification, which is pushing out you know, people that have been living there right. because of, do you get what I'm trying to say? Right. <laughs> so, so they were, they were there precisely because the area was deemed undesirable, yes. um, made their home there, had communities there at least, right? There, there were yes. problems, you know, and now <laughs> the areas are desirable. And so they have to, basically these communities, their housing is contextual. Their, their housing is wherever it is undesirable to be. That, that, it suggests yes. that the system oh is set God, up yes. to to lead to that result, right? Something yes. like that. Yes, exactly. And then even if you look at, I, I was talking about North Nashville and East Nashville earlier. So what's happening with these areas is now you have black families that are just moving out of Nashville and Davidson County because there's no other place that's affordable um, to live in. Um, there was a statistic that we were looking at recently where it said that the rate of families, the percentage of families living in poverty in Nashville has gone down significantly over the past few years. But when you look deeper into that statistic, what you find is that it's not that, you know, we've done something to help alleviate families that were previously living in poverty. What's happening is families that were living in poverty have left Nashville. Right. And that <laughs> was, you know, that's that's what contributes to this statistic that, oh, the, the, the rate of poverty in Nashville has gone down. Um, and I think that speaks to primarily to communities of color that are the ones that are experiencing poverty that are then uh, being pushed out of the city. Right. And, and just to sort of put a, a bow on it from the, the ethical perspective, right? It's, you know, as we've said, it's bad enough, it's harmful, it's terrible that people are displaced. But when the people who are displaced are the same people who are sort of forced into undesirable areas in the first place and who have suffered innumerable injustices historically in this country. It's, it's, it's just an extra slap in the face, an extra injustice. And it's, it's just unconscionable. <laughs> it seems like that, you know, uh, communities of color have to bear the, the costs of all of these problems disproportionately. 
Okay, so so maybe we should um, discuss some of the the more philosophical angles of, of all of this. So one of the things that this discussion drives home for me, and something that I've been harping on for a while now on this podcast, uh, is that it's very dangerous, I think, and thus morally irresponsible to rely on markets to secure basic human rights. It's, it's a nice idea to think that market incentives will align with moral priorities to ensure a morally decent distribution of the necessities of life, but time and again, we see that that's not the case. But does that sound right to you in the case of housing, and do you think that we need to fundamentally change our conception of housing? Yeah, another very good question. Um, and I think there are two ways to look at housing. You can either look at housing as a commodity that's, you know, traded, it's bought and sold, or you can look at it as a human right. And increasingly, I think what we're seeing is this ideological or philosophical shift from it being a human right to it just being another commodity that's traded on the market. And it's not just in the U.S., but it's in big cities around the world that um, we're seeing increasing housing costs. And I think the reason for that is, it's, it's exactly that. I think it's that housing is now increasingly being valued as a commodity for profit. It's traded and sold on markets. You know, it's invested in as a secure place to park excess capital. So you could have a house that you live in, but you could have a number of other houses or properties that you are, like I said, basically putting your excess capital right. so that those can be profit and revenue generating sources of income for you. And we're seeing, I think we're seeing less and less of this view of housing as, you know, a human dwelling, a place to raise families, a place where you can thrive within a community. We spoke about the value of a community um, earlier and what we're seeing of is less and less of that. And like you mentioned, more and more of this like strictly economic perspective, like, so what if, you know, XYZ family has been displaced as long, you know, they still have a house, don't they? So it's mo more and more of that. And I think it's unfortunate that despite its firm place in international human rights law, uh, housing has lost its value as a human right. And and the results everywhere, I think they've been so devastating. In the U.S., in the five years after the 2008 uh, mortgage crisis, nine million households were evicted due to foreclosure. That's nine million families. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think the solution requires a fundamental shift in terms of, you know, more technical things like taxation policy, land use planning, zoning, just broader housing policy. And all of these technical shifts need to reflect a broader philosophical shift, which is one that prioritizes human interests and welfare over economic interests. Right. So your response is interesting to me because one thing I, I was thinking about um, when when reading on you know the housing crisis is I actually think the the human rights documents themselves the language doesn't go far enough um, because at least from the ones I've looked at so the UDHR for instance it, what, it, what it says is that everyone has a basic right to adequate housing right so you can imagine the skeptic coming along and saying you know again well fair enough everyone should have adequate housing but they don't have the right to live wherever they want. And a lot of people might be sympathetic to that, right? Oh, of course, you can't just live wherever you want. So, you know, they might say displacement isn't a threat to basic human rights as long as there's somewhere for the displaced to go. So it seems to me that in addition to adequate housing, 
I'm wondering if a person should have some claim to membership in their community as a matter of a basic human right, and that there's something unjust about a system which forces people to leave their community, even if they can get to housing, right? So I'm, I wonder what you think about this and whether the the language in the human rights documents should be strengthened to reflect this, you know, um, this shift from house to home, you might say. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that would be that would be a great idea. Who do we take this up with? <laughs> <laughs> I know I completely. I mean, we just we just um, talked talked quite a bit about you know the importance of community. You mentioned um, measurement of happiness and how how integral that is much more than an economic measure like GDP to measuring levels of happiness and right. yeah I, I completely agree and I think that's I think that would be a great idea if people actually had um, some sort of like an added layer of protection almost to um, their community yeah I'll have to run this by some human rights philosophers that I know and see what they think about it. Um, so, so the way I framed the discussion at the outset was by saying that the affordable housing crisis shows that economic growth doesn't solve all problems, right? On the other hand, as you said, it's certainly better than economic stagnation and a complete lack of opportunity. I mean, so I guess the question is, is there a way to harness the benefits of economic growth in a city and avoid the downfalls of it? Or to put it another way, can you have revitalization without displacement i think that the argument for economic growth always being a good thing is that there's this assumption that there will be a trickle-down effect that if you have (laughs) if you have all of this um all of these companies coming into the city all of this development that's happening that it will necessarily affect those that are kind of at the bottom rung It, it, it will necessarily go go down to people who might not necessarily have might might belong to a lower income class and that's not necessarily the case. Um, what can happen very well as a result of development and economic growth in a city, um, which might not be reflected in broader statistics, but if you dive deeper, you might find that it's what's happening is that the rich are continuing to get richer and the positive effects of the economic growth might not be reaching the communities that need it most. I think we, and, can, actually, we can be a bit more bold yeah. than that and just say that they're not. <laughs> Yes. yes. Yeah. We, we don't yes. say that they might not be reaching. No, they're, they're just not. <laughs> <laughs> and and there, there are so many, there are a number of nonprofits that, um, you know, a lot of the work that I do is in partnership with nonprofits and um, community organizers around the city. And one thing that we're repeatedly hearing from them is, is exactly this. It's that, you know, the development doesn't have to be a dirty word. There, there are ways to do it well. And in a, in ways that it can benefit everybody involved, but there has to be community buy-in. There has to be direct investment in communities. So one example that I'll give you is there's this nonprofit here in Nashville called Stand Up Nashville, and they negotiated um, a community benefits agreement with the uh, soccer stadium. So they said, you know, there's this big investment and development project that's happening they're getting a number of tax breaks and benefits from um the the city but in order for what we as a community want is that everybody who works on this project will have at least 15 15 dollars uh, an hour minimum wage mm-hmm. and they had like a number of agreements that they negotiated with the city and with the developer and they were successful and you know there as yeah i i doubt there's any one who's against economic growth right. or development inherently. It's when it's done in a way 
that doesn't have community buy-in and people are negatively affected that you know that that's where the problem comes in we talked earlier about um equitable development i think that that's the key it needs to be equitable and the i think the interests of communities need to be ahead of just how much how much profit big corporations are earning right and and i think it's an important point because i think often in these kinds of discussions people who are concerned with human rights or people who are you know considered progressive or left or something like that people can sometimes get the impression that there's an opposition to economics and economic growth but as you point mm-hmm. out i mean it's it's just absurd i mean that i i think that appearance arises just because rather the position is that there isn't a blind faith in economic growth, right? Mm-hmm. As a way to improve the lives of everyone for all the reasons that you just said. Um, so I think that's really important. All right. So I guess one, I mean, that, that was really interesting and valuable. One, I guess, potentially fraught question. <laughs> you don't have to answer this if you don't want. So, you know, you've, you've, you've mentioned ways that we could harness the benefits of, of economic growth and development for everyone. Why isn't this happening <laughs> on a larger scale? Yeah, I think it's because, uh, one, it's not profitable for companies. So now this, uh, you know, if, if it wasn't for this community benefits agreement, they might have paid minimum wage, which is seven twenty five, And now they're having to pay every single person $15. So like, you know, it's not profitable. Two, it takes work. Community engagement and building relationships, meaningful relationships, it takes work. It takes you know, being sincere and being genuine and actually caring about this community that you are taking your business or your company to. Um, one example that I saw of this recently, I went to a neighborhood association meeting and um, there was, you know, a developer that wanted to construct an apartment complex in that area. And even though they already had the land and they had their plan approved by the city, they still wanted to have community buy-in. So they reached out to this neighborhood association. They said, we want to come present our plan to you. We would love to get feedback. And they came. And for it was a two-hour long meeting with you know about an hour of the developers presenting what their plan was going to be and an hour of Q&A. Well, what about this? What about that? How many of the units are going to be one bed? How many are going to be... Like all of these questions mm-hmm. um, about coming from the community about this development plan. And recommendations. And that would require, you know, if you genuinely care, taking the recommendations to back, uh, putting your plan back on the drawing board and incorporating community feedback into your plan. And then, you know, it might be an iterative process that goes back and forth a number of times. So I think the easier, cheaper, (laughs) more convenient thing to do is to not do any of this. But then that's also the not personal and not humane way to do things either. So I think if you genuinely care about, and and I think companies should, if a company is moving into a city, into a neighborhood, you can take Amazon, you can take Alliance Bernstein, for instance, you know, you have community organizers that are very vocal about the fact that these companies are coming into the city. And that's not necessarily because them coming to the city is inherently bad. It's that, we we just want to be aware of how this is going to further change this already like super rapidly changing city. Right. Is it going to exacerbate the problems that we already have in terms of housing? Um, or will these companies genuinely care and invest in the communities that they're, they're going to be in? Like, will they actually give back and 
just like an individual is a citizen and once they move to a city they pay taxes they contribute they volunteer they you know try to be a good citizen like one should expect the same thing from a company if you're moving into a city what are you doing to benefit that city apart from the baseline like oh we're creating 5000 jobs okay right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but how are going towards your bottom line what are you really doing for the city of course you don't want to have to rely on the goodwill of developers to make that choice to engage with community organizers etc um and so you know yeah, my first thought is well it would be nice you sort of, I suppose in an ideal world if there was a requirement for them to do that of course just off the top of my head you would imagine that would it would at least dampen the growth right because lots of developers will just say sorry we're not you know if if you're going to force us to um abide by all of these kinds of concerns that you have were just not interested and then and then maybe you lose out on the growth altogether and you're kind of in this difficult bind <laughs> i think and i think you know from what little i know it seems like cities are often in this kind of bind where some developer wants to come in that at minimum is a great opportunity for a city city right it's not inherently good it's not inherently bad but it's an opportunity but then the problem is the developer doesn't really want to give much um and they they kind of don't have to in many cases. No, I agree. That's 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 the difficult part of it. That those are things that we grapple with. Like what is that that that's all you know, we we think about all of that as well. Um what is the best way what to you know, continue because as we said, economic growth and development if done well, they they're good. They are beneficial. um but how do you make sure that it's happening in a way that's equitable and beneficial to people that are living in the city yeah i guess if you could just go into a business school and just be like hey don't do really bad things <laughs> to to the business students don't do the things that have really terrible moral consequences can we just do that and then we're good um there there's my solution there i i think i've solved the problem i think that's a really good solution <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Sarah, thank you so much for this um extremely informative and enlightening conversation and thank you for your work with the National Human Relations Commission um yes, which again we, so we will link to so on uh, badlandsphilosophy.com. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Toby. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at @thebadlandspod. Thanks again for listening.